Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is turning up the pressure on congressional Republicans to address increasing gun violence in the United States. NPR's Giles Snyder reports the deadly school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee this week has once again renewed the debate on Capitol Hill over passing stricter gun control laws in the U.S. President Biden is pushing back against congressional Republicans who reject his call to renew a ban on assault-style weapons, saying there is a moral price to pay for the lack of action. It's a common sense issue. We have to act now. People say, why do I keep saying this if it's not happening? Because I want you to know who isn't doing it, who isn't helping put pressure on. Biden argues that he's done all he can through executive action and signing into law last year's gun safety bill. The White House says Republicans must get on board. Without them, Biden does not have the votes. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, guns have surpassed car accidents as a leading cause of death among children. Trial Snyder, NPR News. President Biden is set to announce nearly $700 million in aid to promote democracy around the globe. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the president will announce the details during his second summit for democracy at the White House today. This year, President Biden is co-hosting the summit along with the leaders of Costa Rica, Zambia, the Netherlands and South Korea. The speakers include leaders from around the world, as well as democracy activists, including a top opposition leader from Belarus, a recently released political prisoner from Nicaragua and the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative to discuss democracy issues here in the U.S. A White House aide says the administration is beefing up its financial commitment to activists overseas and working on ways to ensure that technology works for and not against democracy. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. An overwhelming majority of Americans believe health care is a right for all citizens. That's the finding from the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll. But NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports that support slips when people are asked about where that coverage should come from. 83% say all Americans have a right to health care coverage. That includes 7 in 10 Republicans. But their support falls away when asked if it's government's responsibility to provide that coverage. Overall, nearly two-thirds of the more than 1,300 respondents say it is the government's responsibility. Gen Zers and millennials are the most likely of any generation to say the government should provide health care. But only a third of all Republicans polled think so. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Lifelong Boston civil rights activist and political leader Mel King has died. King's son Michael tells WBUR he died in his sleep at home yesterday afternoon of what Michael said was, quote, just old age. Mel King was 94. His activism stretches back decades. Here he is in 1968 calling for the unconditional acceptance of black Americans into a diverse and equal society. I'm not talking about uh, that melting pot kind of thing. talking about integration at the seats of power and decision making. And without that, the rest of what we talk about is a sham. King served as a state rep from 1973 until 1982. The next year, he became the first black candidate to reach Boston's general election for mayor. He lost to Ray Flynn. 
Local leaders are remembering King this morning. As WBUR's Samantha Kutsia reports, many thought of him as an inspiration. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says King's ideas shaped generations of leaders who drive the city closer to his vision of a more equal society. City Councilor Ruth C. Louis-Jean tweeted that King's legacy will be felt all over the city. Senator Ed Markey worked with King as a state representative. He says King taught everyone in the legislature what it means to fight for racial, economic, and social justice. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. Some state lawmakers want to change language in the Massachusetts Constitution. They want to adjust the way the document refers to the governor and lieutenant governor. Right now, the holders of those positions are referenced as his excellency and his honor, even though both jobs are held by women. State Representative Jennifer Armini wants to add female and gender-neutral pronouns to the Constitution. If thought corrupts language wrote George Orwell in 1984, language can also corrupt thought. In this case, our Commonwealth's most sacred document upon which our freedom and the rule of law rest conveys the supremacy of one gender. Governor Maura Healey says she had not heard of the proposal prior to this. She adds she thinks people know how to refer to her. The matchup is set in Salem for the general election for Mayor Neil Harrington and Dominic Pangala, advanced from yesterday's preliminary contest. Harrington was a former mayor of Salem. Pangala was the chief of staff for former Mayor Kim Driscoll. She stepped down to become lieutenant governor. The general election in Salem will be held in May. It's 7.07. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The Bruins lost to the Nashville Predators 2-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Columbus Blue Jackets tomorrow. The Celtics fell to the Wizards 130-111 in Washington. The Seas will visit the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. And in your forecast, sunny today with a high in the 50s, cloudy overnight, temperatures will fall to around freezing, some rain or snow showers around sunrise tomorrow, sunny after that with temperatures only in the 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our podcast, The Common, one of the many ways that we are expanding our coverage and coming to you in new ways that you want. Every day, Daryl dives deep into local issues, and those really important conversations are there for you free wherever you get your podcasts. Think about that and everything you get from WBUR and give, please, as part of our spring fundraiser. Just go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with the lovely Tiziana Deering. Well, good morning and thank you for that on this midweek day as we start this fundraiser. You know, Daryl is right. A contribution actually has deep 
meaning and huge impact mm-hmm. for us here at WBUR. When we turn to you and you provide the, the largest portion of our funding here at the station, we're not asking you to do a lot. We're just asking you to do. Because when we collectively do together, even those little bits have deep meaning and mm-hmm. huge impact for us as we try to bring you the truth about our lives, our community, the world around us. So a small gift, $10 a month, $20 a month, Huge impact for us. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter at WBUR. Massachusetts has one of the only state-run family shelter systems, and many thousands of local families turn to it at their hardest moment. And sometimes it works well, but sometimes it really doesn't. Almost every night, there are parents and kids in emergency rooms, like at Boston Children's Hospital, simply because they cannot get into a shelter. It's massive. We have had to dedicate close to 40% of our social work resources to this problem. I spent months convincing hospitals to share their perspective. I talked to families and state officials about their experience. And with this messy and complicated system, I try to distill what's important, what's new, what the implications are, and what matters to families who use the system and to taxpayers who pay hundreds of millions of dollars each year to make our state's family shelter system possible. I will continue to cover this because there are problems and because there are big changes on the horizon. Gabriella is doing such amazing work for us. Yesterday, she was on the show talking about a settlement of a lawsuit um, that's going to reshape the family shelter system in Massachusetts. I actually found myself standing still in the hallway with my cup of coffee just to hear the end of what she was telling. Yeah, she was talking and I was just getting so excited because, I mean, I covered homeless families in Massachusetts years ago myself and this uh, settlement may give them transportation, more transportation from wherever they're placed, which was a really big problem because they were just stranded in hotels across the state and had no way to actually improve their lives or make money or anything like that. So this is the really, really important reporting that we bring you every day. These are the dedicated reporters that are not here for any reason other than the fact that they care about this reporting. They care about the people in our community, and they want to make sure that you know what's going what's going on with the people in your community and that you are connected to them. And when you give this week, you support that reporting, and you also get entered into a, a drawing for a vacation. And I, I just can't believe this. Every time I say it, yeah, a vacation, drawing doesn't seem big enough. No, <laughs> a vacation anywhere in the world, a $10,000 vacation anywhere in the world. This week through Friday, when you give, you are entered into that vaca- that drawing for a vacation. That is an incredible reward, possible reward, when you know that you are doing what you need to do to support your community and keep this reporting coming. We really appreciate your help. Just go to WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right, Rupa. Uh, You have until Friday to make any small monthly contribution that will get you into that sweepstakes. But contribute today. 
instead. Because today we can also offer you offer you a Charles River apparel jacket as a thanks for your $10 a month gift. Now, after 7 p.m. tonight, it's $20 a month. So do it now. Make a $10 a month gift. Gorgeous blue fleece four-season jacket, which means you could wear it anywhere in the world mm-hmm. on your trip for your sweepstakes. Gray interior, that cool WBUR embroidered logo. $10 a month until 7 p.m. tonight, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And even if it was $20 a month, that's kind of a deal. It's I mean, this thing is deal. sleek. It's Gorgeous. dark blue. It's quite, quite nice. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and please give. Thank you so much for your help. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Opening April 1st, WorcesterArt.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Former Vice President Mike Pence will have to testify to a grand jury in the Justice Department's ongoing probe of the January 6th attack. That's the ruling of a federal judge, according to multiple media reports. Pence must testify about conversations he had with former President Trump leading up to the attack on the Capitol. But in the ruling, which remains sealed, the judge reportedly also said Pence can decline questions related to January 6th itself. So what does this mean for the DOJ's investigation? Joining us now to help us understand this is former federal and state prosecutor Ellie Honig. Mr. Honig, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be with you. This is a fascinating story, a first in some ways, so happy to talk to you about it. Well, well thanks. So, but, but can you help me understand something? Without knowing the exact wording of the ruling, which remains sealed, as we said, can you clear this up? What is the judge saying Pence must talk about, and what is he saying he can refuse to talk about? So it may help understand that if we look at the legal arguments that were made here. So the Justice Department, special counsel Jack Smith, subpoenaed Mike Pence for his testimony. There were actually two objections that were raised. Donald Trump objected sort of from the outside. He's not a party to this subpoena, but he came in and said, no, I don't want my former vice president testifying on the basis of executive privilege, meaning this was a conversation between me and him in office. It shouldn't come out. The court rejected that. And courts will almost always reject that in the context of a criminal grand jury subpoena, which this is. Separately, Mike Pence himself argued this sort of obscure constitutional provision called the speech or debate clause. And that says that members of Congress cannot be subpoenaed by an outside entity about anything to do with their legislative work. Mike Pence said, well, as vice president, I was the president of the Senate. The the vice president casts the tie-breaking vote, presides over things like counting Mm -hmm. the electoral ballots. And the court actually said, yes, you count under the speech and debate clause. And as a result of that, you don't have to answer questions about what you did in your job as Senate president. So standing up there on that dais, counting up the votes. So the way I read it, the way I understand it is, Pence can be questioned about essentially everything leading up to the actual day of January 6th, and perhaps even some of the activities on January 6th, but not what did you do when you were standing up there on the dais and it came down time for you to count up the electoral votes. But all the lead up, all the meetings with Trump leading up, I think are are in play here. Why do you think those claims of executive privilege and the separation of powers, which were brought forth by the legal teams of Pence and Trump, as you just described, why do you think they didn't hold up? So executive privilege is um, is not meant to protect against disclosure of wrongdoing. It's not meant to be a shield. This is according to the Supreme Court, going back to a case involving Richard Nixon. 
It's meant to protect against legitimate policy and strategy conversations between executive branch officials. So almost always in the context of a criminal investigation, courts are not going to observe executive privilege. The, uh, the other complication there is Donald Trump is a former president now. And while it's not impossible for a former president to invoke executive privilege, it's much more difficult. It's, it's an uphill climb. On the other issue, the speech and debate issue, the court apparently actually made a quite favorable ruling to, to Pence in arguing that, yes, he, he can be covered by it. There was some legal debate out there about whether the vice president counts um, as a member of Congress. But for, for these purposes, the court said yes, but they said it's very limited. It only applies to your actual role sitting up there on the dais with the gavel in your hand presiding mm -hmm. over the Senate. How big of a deal is this reported ruling? Well, it's a huge deal for prosecutors because now they get to sit there and, and bring Mike Pence in under oath in front of a grand jury, in front of 23 civilians, and ask him questions. And he has to answer under penalty of perjury, again, with that one limitation. But if I'm a prosecutor here, I would want to know all the meetings that he had with Donald Trump. And we know Mike Pence has spoken about and written about several crucial meetings that he had with Trump in the days leading up to January 6th. I would want more depth and more detail than he said in his book or he said publicly. But I would want to know specifically, did Donald Trump pressure you? What exactly did Trump say to you? Did Trump acknowledge that he knew he lost the election? Did he say something else? Did he threaten you in any way? Um, I would want to go through all of that. What advice were you getting from your people? I think that's real. That's crucial to Jack Smith, the special counsel's investigation of January 6th. That is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Governor Bill Lee is urging Tennesseans to pray for the three children and three adults killed in a school shooting and also for their community. He did this by also vowing to discuss policy changes to avoid repeat of such a tragedy. We can all agree on one thing, that every human life has great value. And we will act to prevent this from happening again. Police say the shooter had planned other targets, including a mall, and messaged a former basketball teammate minutes before the shooting, fantasizing about dying. The teammate tried to get help, but it was too late. Rachel Wegner of the Tennessean joins us now from Nashville. Uh, Rachel, I know there was a vigil last night. What can you tell us about how it went? Uh, yes, good morning. Last night, a vigil held in Mount Juliet just outside Nashville drew hundreds. There was a time of prayer, including prayer specifically for the teachers that were in the group. Folks bowed their heads, huddled together, placed hands on each other as they prayed. Um, there's also a citywide vigil being hosted in Nashville by our mayor tonight. Now, I know police released body cam footage. They did that yesterday. We want to play a, a clip from that. And I just want to warn everyone, uh, it's sound from police officers' body cam footage. Go, go, go. What did we learn from that footage? So the footage released was from the point of view of two officers who responded to the scene. It was about six minutes total. So we start with Officer Rex Engelbert. As he arrives on the scene, you see a staff member directing him eventually he works with a team of officers to clear the first floor of the building and then enters the second floor, which is where they encountered the shooter. Um, you hear several shots coming around from the hallway and then also as they round the corner and encountered the shooter. And then you see a blurred out version of the shooter laying on the ground after the officers fatally shot them. And then the second point of view is from Officer Michael Colazzo, similar to the first point of view, but from a different angle. 
We also found out uh, that the shooter had sent a message to someone uh, before the shooting. Uh, what can you tell us about that? So the shooter had messaged a former basketball teammate, I believe from middle school, saying, I want to die. Something really bad is going to happen. This will make more sense later. You'll probably hear about it on the news. So that friend quickly reached out to the suicide prevention helpline and then was directed to reach out to the police. But by the time she did, the shooter had already entered the school. So it was sadly too late at that point. And I mentioned earlier, Rachel, how the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, wants to take action. Did he say how he wanted to do that? He did not. He did say they want to act to make sure this doesn't happen again. Governor Lee's wife was close friends with one of the substitute teachers who was killed in the shooting on Monday. They actually had plans to have dinner on Monday night, um, and that never happened. But Governor Lee said, you know, there will be a time and place to discuss policy, but for now has urged people to be respectful and kind and to save that conversation for a later time. All right, Rachel Wagner's a reporter with a Tennessean in Nashville. Rachel, thanks. Thank you. Catherine Kuntz was one of the victims of Monday's mass shooting in Nashville. The 60-year-old educator was headmaster at the Covenant School. She lived in a manner that has informed how I live and love the people around me. Anna Cottle worked with Kuntz for eight years at another school in Nashville, and they remained friends. She says Kuntz had a way of combining developmental psychology with her Christian faith. A lot of what she did that was brilliant was she could translate that technical sort of language around childhood developmental psychology into language that people within a church setting could understand. She would talk about the potential of kids, but in terms of their unique potential as a sacred gift from God. Cottle says her friend worked to empower kids with learning disabilities. She was so frank. And at first it would make me mad because I thought, gosh, I don't want kids' feelings to be hurt. I don't want them to feel ashamed. But what I learned over time was that by being frank with them, She gave them voice, and they were able to better advocate for themselves. After she got word about the shooting on Monday, Cottle started watching the live news coverage. I realized about an hour into it that I was looking for Catherine. And I didn't see her, and I just kept thinking, okay, she's she's taking care of kids, or she's getting on the bus to go with kids to the reunification point. On her way to pick up her 17-year-old son after a lockdown at his school, which is near Covenant, she found out what happened to Kuntz. As I was on the way to, to the carpool line, my husband called and said, Catherine didn't make it. She says it's a loss that will affect her entire community. Are we just going to keep letting this happen? How many do we have that many Catherine Kuntzes that can just be erased? That woman was a tree, and to uproot her, you're talking about a loss of generations of, of knowledge and building and empowering. We can't afford that. That's Anna Cottle talking about her friend Catherine Kuntz, who was killed Monday by a mass shooter at the Covenant School in Nashville.
This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. This is Rupa Shanoi. I'm. Uh, this, you're listening to Morning Edition. And gosh, sorry, I'm still reflecting on that yeah. last story. S- times are really hard. Sometimes the news is really hard, and we just need to acknowledge that straight up. That you know, we need to bring you that reporting, and and yeah, it can be tough. But we also make sure to bring you stories of joy and good times. We are there for you with the highs and the lows. Actually, Tiziana Deering is here, right across from the desk. I am, and. Yesterday, she was making crepes on her show. Yes, standing, sitting, standing right where you're sitting, making crepes with Joe Gatton. I heard about it. Savory and sweet. True. What is more fun than that? She'll also soon have a city space event. But I've read the description. It basically sounds like you'll be drinking beer. Everyone will be. Uh-huh. Yes, we're, we're examining uh, the brewing industry in Massachusetts with Brewed in Mass. And we have an event on April 6th at City Space for the same reason that you're saying, Rupa, right? Which is that... Um, We must confront the challenges we face as a community head on, and we must hold hands in joy uh, when we can, too. And we do try to bring all of that to you every day here on WBUR. And we're looking for a small contribution to support our ability to stand together in joy, in truth, in sorrow when this moments come. Mm-hmm. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Leila Faldin. We've learned that we can't take our democracy for granted. Journalism in the public interest, journalism that is the heart of WBUR, keeps democracy thriving. Member dollars give WBUR the time to pursue stories that can take months of investigation. These stories often reveal uncomfortable truths, truths that can lead to meaningful change. It all starts with member dollars. Not a member yet? Give today at WBUR.org. Layla Fano was talking kind of fast there, but what she's basically <laughs> saying is don't take democracy for granted. We know that you get that message. We know that you know that supporting news like this is important, complete, honest, well-researched, well-reported news that is fair and balanced and with our community in mind. Support that. And when you support it, you also get entered into a drawing to win a trip anywhere in the world. There are so many places Joy. that we want to go right now. Yeah, After the pandemic, it just feels like you want to go anywhere. This is your ticket, a $10,000 ticket to go anywhere you want to go in the world. When you give a monthly contribution today, listeners provide the biggest share of our funding. That's why we need you to step up today. If you can start a monthly contribution of 10 or $20 or more, if you have the means, give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm going to zero in on that word today, Rupa. Today mm-hmm. is the first day of our spring fundraiser. You have until Friday 
to make a small monthly contribution that gets you entered into this sweepstakes. And by the way, we actually mean it. You and however many people anywhere in the world you want to go, there's a $10,000 cap that will take you a long way. Mm -hmm. But if you give today before 7 p.m. and you can do a small contribution of $10 a month, you not only get entered in that sweepstake, but we also can offer you a Charles River Apparel WBUR fleece four-season jacket. Blue on the outside, gray on the inside, WBUR uh, logo embroidered men and women's sizes. Um, you can show your pride in being a person who listens to WBUR every day, who streams our podcasts, who reads our digital, who attends City Space events, who brings the quality news and information you rely on, democracy relies on, we mm -hmm. rely on, to yourself and your neighbors every day. So do that before 7 p.m. After 7, it's $20 a month. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. These jackets are really smart looking, really snazzy. They'll flatter anyone and they'll be, I mean, this is a really tough time to dress in general because right. you never know what the weather's going to be like. Freezing especially in the here. morning, balmy in the afternoon. Yeah, this is one of those layering items that'll really keep you warm when you need to be and you can take it off when you don't need to be. Um, these are the rewards that we have for you when you give, when you become part of our community. And it's so important to be part of a community right now as we seek to to supply everyone with quality, complete news. If you can, start a monthly contribution, $10, $20 more. If you have the means, do it for people who can't do it right now. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Invest your money in your community. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Tennessee say the person who shot and killed six people this week at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville had legally purchased multiple firearms in recent years. Investigators say the 28-year-old former student at the Covenant School bought seven guns. Police say the shooter, identified as Audrey Hale, was under a doctor's care for an undisclosed emotional disorder and was not known to authorities before the shooting. Three students and three adults at the school were killed. President Biden says he hopes to see a compromise in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has put a one-month hold on his efforts to overhaul the country's judiciary. Here's NPR's Franco Ordonez. The Biden administration is being increasingly vocal about its reservations over Netanyahu's plan to reshape the Israeli judiciary system. Those efforts have led to mass protests across Israel and accusations that it would undercut the country's democracy. On a trip to North Carolina, Biden said he's made his concerns clear to the Israeli government. Hopefully, uh, the prime minister will act in a way that he's going to try to work out some genuine compromise, but that remains to be seen. And what could be another sign of how this has impacted U.S.-Israel relations, Biden said he has no plans, at least in the near future, to invite Netanyahu to the White House for a visit. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Congressman Stephen Lynch will be part of a House panel hearing testimony today about recent bank failures. Financial regulators went before the Senate yesterday and heard from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She reminded banking leaders of the wave of regulations that followed the financial crisis in 2008. 
big banks hated them, and their CEOs lobbied hard to weaken those rules. Ultimately, Congress signed off, and then it got bad, really bad. Regulators burned down dozens of safeguards that were meant to stop banks from making risky bets. This pair of hearings follows the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks earlier this month. A new poll out of Harvard shows nearly two-thirds of Americans aged 19 to 29 support stricter gun laws. The national poll was done by the Institute of Politics at Harvard's Kennedy School. WBUR's Dave Faniff reports it was conducted before this week's school shooting in Nashville. The poll shows support for stricter gun laws transcends race, education, and gender. Director of polling John Delavolpe says gun violence weighs heavily on young Americans' emotional health. Close to two in five have these feelings of fear that something bad is going to happen right around the corner, more days than not in the next couple of weeks. And when we dig down a little bit deeper, we see concerns about mass shootings and gun violence are driving those fears and anxiety. 73% want laws requiring psychological exams to buy a gun, and 58% want a ban on assault-style weapons. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The Newton School Committee is blocking an effort by some parents and teachers to create a controversial advisory panel. The plan would have given the group influence over district policies. Backers say it would improve communications between parents and schools. Opponents claim it was a veiled effort to reverse the district's racial and equity policies. The Boston Globe reports committee members unanimously voted against the effort last night. It's 7.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Celtics' three-game winning streak ended last night in Washington. They lost to the Wizards 130-111. to The Bruins' winning streak also ended at seven games last night. They fell to the Nashville Predators 2-1 to at the Garden. The Red Sox ended spring training yesterday with a 7-5 to loss to Atlanta. The Sox will begin the season tomorrow at home against the Baltimore Orioles. In your forecast, clear skies today with temperatures rising to the low 50s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and over Overnight, there's a chance of rain and a little snow. Tomorrow, sunny and cold, with highs only in the upper 30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 736. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For years, environmental activists have been worried about the high concentration of potentially hazardous infrastructure in the Quincy, Braintree, Weymouth area. 
Their concerns took on a new urgency after multiple trailers full of toxic materials caught fire last month at a hazardous waste disposal center. State officials say that the chemical fire posed no significant health risk, but local residents still have a lot of questions. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, they're demanding that public officials do more to keep them safe. On the night of February 16th, Braintree Town Councilor Elizabeth Maglio was starting to get ready for bed when her phone rang. It was the mayor, Charles Kokoris. Hey, mayor, what's up? That's when he told me. Two alarm fire, Clean Harbors. Clean Harbors is the largest hazardous waste facility in New England. It handles toxic and dangerous materials from chemical companies, hospitals, and other commercial businesses. Maglio had long worried that local officials weren't paying enough attention to public safety, That's a large part of why she ran for town council. Now, the sort of emergency she had warned others about was happening. I did exactly what you're not supposed to do, which was run out the front door because behind the house across the street, I could see the fire and the smoke. Maglio stood in the street for several minutes. She watched a big plume of smoke rise into the sky, illuminated by the flashing blue and red lights of emergency responders. And she heard two small explosions. I heard a pop, and then I heard another pop. About a half mile away, firefighters from several towns were trying to contain the chemical fire. It had started in a row of trailers parked by a loading dock. Some waste product had spontaneously combusted. Maglio says the mayor called her back about a half hour later from the Clean Harbor's property. Kokoros told her he wasn't sure what was burning, but he was going to put a note on Facebook telling people to keep their windows closed. Only relying on social media was a move he'd later regret. A lot of people in Braintree, let alone those living in nearby Quincy or Weymouth, didn't get the message. And they made that clear at a town meeting shortly after the fire. You could have called and said, we're earing on the side of caution. Please keep your windows closed. I didn't know it was happening until the next morning. I panicked. We walked to school the next morning and stood outside at lineup for 15 minutes. Were the kids in danger? That was Lorraine Liston, Leland Dingy, and Megan Feldpash. The Clean Harbors fire burned through barrels of waste products like paints, epoxies, oil filters, solvents. People were worried that they had breathed in harmful toxins. Many reported feeling a burning sensation in their throats or eyes the night of the fire. Others said the air smelled like melting plastic. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection maintains that the air quality during and after the Braintree fire did not pose a risk. A more recent analysis by an expert Clean Harbors hired concluded the same thing. But some residents are skeptical. Looming in the background is the recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that resulted in authorities burning off more than 100,000 gallons of toxic chemicals. Philip Landrigan directs the Global Public Health Program at Boston College, and he's an expert in how toxic chemicals affect human health. There's, there's no way I can believe that there was no air pollution generated in that fire. We, the facts speak for themselves that very, very high levels of particulates were recorded at several different air monitors in the neighborhood surrounding the site. Even short-term air pollution can be risky for people with existing health conditions. And state data show that residents of Braintree, Weymouth, and Quincy who live near clean harbors have higher rates of cancer, pediatric asthma, and cardiovascular and respiratory diseases than statewide averages. What's more, Landrigan says that during a chemical fire, the presence of small particulate matter is often an indication that other toxins are in the air too. 
when a chemical fire takes place, lots of different materials are thrown into the air. In the wake of the fire, some residents have demanded an independent analysis of health risks. But while they wait to learn more about potential air, soil, and water contamination, they're also looking forward. Many have called the Clean Harbors fire a near miss and say it highlights the need for better safety plans. Of course, it's going to happen again, and it could be even worse. Alice Arena lives in Weymouth and is the president of an environmental group that opposes the Weymouth Natural Gas Compressor Station. She calls the Four River Basin, the area along the water where Quincy, Braintree, and Weymouth meet, a, quote, circle of danger. In addition to clean harbors and the compressor, there are two power plants, two fuel tank farms, a chemical manufacturing facility, and a plant that makes fertilizer. You've put all of these toxic, explosive facilities in one location that is surrounded by residential areas. For years, ARENA and other activists have called for more permanent air monitors and a regional safety and evacuation plan. Every city or town in Massachusetts is required to have an emergency response plan, but there's no plan for how officials from Braintree, Weymouth, or Quincy would work together to streamline communications or evacuate people. This is a densely populated area with only a few main roads in or out, Arena says. What happens if the Four River Bridge, which has a nasty habit of getting stuck open, isn't passable? The people who live in this area deserve better. At Braintree's most recent town meeting last week, it wasn't just activists speaking up. The mayor, the fire chief, the whole council. Everyone now says they want air monitors and a regional plan. Elizabeth Maglio, the activist who got elected to town council, says she feels vindicated. This chemical fire could be a defining moment for the region, she says, because it presents an opportunity for local and state officials to do a better job protecting residents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Mosser. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests, such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. This is Lisa Mullins. Support from our listeners does more than pay for WBUR's journalism. Your support makes editorial independence a reality. And it all starts with your gift of $10 or maybe $15 a month. Those ongoing monthly contributions are how we pay for independent journalism. Sustain the journalism that sustains you. Start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. Lisa Mullins there, my counterpart on All Things Considered. Uh, That's this afternoon. She's talking about editorial independence. We know that's important to you. We know you're listening because you value editorial independence. WBUR will always be free and open to everyone. But it takes investment from people who care about it to allow us to thrive. Our strength is listener support. We only have editorial independence because of that support. So when you give $10, $20, or $30 a month to WBUR, you are standing up for free and independent journalism and storytelling. You are saying that WBUR matters 
to you and your community. And you're going to ensure that WBUR continues to thrive. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition, here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. You know, I was thinking about the range of coverage that we've heard here on WBUR just this morning from a chemical fire in Braintree all the way to a devastating lethal fire in Ciudad Juarez, right? We bring the neighborhood and the world because our understanding, our connection are so important. You start your day with us. You may end your day with us. You listen, you read, you attend. Now we ask for you to support. And when you do a small amount, just a few dollars a month, you make sure that we all stand together in understanding and joy and pain and knowledge for the days and years to come. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. When you give today, you get entered into a drawing for a $10,000 trip anywhere in the world. Anywhere. It's going to be cold tomorrow. So I'm thinking about going maybe <laughs> somewhere in the Caribbean, maybe Bermuda, maybe something like Costa Rica or Brazil. Anything Anywhere. in those, yeah, those warm places. Yeah, absolutely. So go to WBUR.org to give or call 1-800-909-9287. You can support WBUR and you can think about where you want to go. Hi, I'm Kayla from Burlington, New Jersey, and I would say the best place I've ever visited was the island of Jamaica. My name is Bautin, I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina. The best place I've ever traveled to is definitely Paris. Hi, this is Casey from Somerville. The best trip I've ever been on was when I got to go to just south of Acadia National Park called Northeast Harbor with my family a couple years ago. And while we were sailing, there were dolphins that were swimming next to us. I love Acadia, but I would go a little bit further than <laughs> Acadia for this. And the dolphins, you can you can get dolphins, well, whales here in Boston. So maybe maybe think a little bit further. But think about giving this week. And, and you have until Friday to be entered into that drawing. But as Tiziana has been saying, do it today. Get in before other people. Don't waste the time. Friday comes really quick. Go to WBUR.org to give or call 1-800-909-9287. One more reason to do it today. Until 7 p.m. tonight, if you make a gift of $10 a month, we can give you a Charles River Apparel Blue Fleece four-season jacket, gray lining. It's got that WBUR logo embroidered. People are snatching them up already this Mm -hmm. morning. After 7 p.m. tonight, it'll be a gift of $20 a month. So don't wait. Give now on this first day of the fundraiser. Be entered for the sweepstake. Clothe yourself in gorgeous (laughs) WBUR apparel and bring the quality news and information you rely on to yourself and your community. The number 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thanks. Thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The economy 
crime, TikTok, transgender rights, and socially-minded business practices. Those are all a big part of the political conversation right now. So a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll asked more than 1,300 people for their views on each. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here with us to tell us more about the political risks for both parties in their responses. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Michelle. People have put the economy as the top issue facing the country for much of Biden's presidency. So how do voters think he's doing? Well, you know, Biden has really tried to make the case more and more about the economy, but now just 38% approve of how he's handling it, lower than his overall job approval rating of 42%, which isn't really great either. You know, we've seen Biden in recent months really try to win over persuadable voters. We've seen that since his State of the Union address, for example. And when you look at our survey with independents, just 28% approve of how he's handling the economy. So, so far, you know, he hasn't made the sale. That's a pretty tough spot to be in for someone who wants to win re-election, which is what we're expecting Biden to announce that he's going to run for re-election soon. Um, You know, and in 2020, he largely won because of COVID, which politically is increasingly in the rearview mirror. Another concern for Democrats is crime, although here's why I have to question how much control the president really has on this, you know, unless the issue is gun safety. And even there, he made the point again yesterday that he has his, his hands are pretty much tied on this. But having said all that, what do the numbers say? Yeah, I mean, crime tends to be a much more local issue, but people, you know, blame presidents for everything. And on crime, just 35% approve of Biden's handling of it. And that includes just 27% of independents. Seven in 10 people say crime is a real threat to communities not blown out of proportion by politicians, which was notable. Also, nine uh, non-white voters are among the most likely to say that crime is a real threat. They're more in line with several pro-Trump groups, uh, not groups that tend to vote Democratic like they do. And, you know, they're actually 11 points higher than college-educated whites, who are a key uh, Democratic voting group as well. You know, it's a real tricky spot for Democrats. Uh, You know, they run a lot of the major big cities in the country. Republicans trying to use that as, uh, you know, something against Democratic governance. And it's become a main issue, for example, in the Chicago mayor's race between two Democrats with very different approaches, and we're seeing this play out over and over. Okay, TikTok. Now, this might be surprising to fans of the app, but you're telling us a majority of Americans actually support a ban? Yeah, 57% said they they support a ban. Three quarters of people say that they think it represents at least a minor threat to national security. Huge generational divide here. Younger Americans least likely to support a ban or say it's a major threat. Uh, That could be also tricky for Biden because, you know, he needs young voters to to vote for him in 2024. Banning TikTok, most downloaded app in the world, sure isn't going to make him many friends with that group. Okay, so let's not forget Republicans. Do they have any vulnerabilities? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a majority say it's a bad idea, for example, to criminalize providing gender transition related medical care for minors, even though two thirds of Republicans are in favor of that. Now, Republicans have gained on this question. Support in April 2021 was only 28 percent in favor. Now it's up to 43 percent. But they're still out of step with the majority. Um, When it comes to drag shows, almost six in 10 people say they're against restricting them. Again, here, Republicans are out of step. And when you look at business practices, the so-called ESG or environmental, social and governance practices, About three quarters of people say it's more important to invest with profitable companies that are also mindful of their impact on the environment and society rather than simply to make money. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks. You're welcome. NPR has learned the Food and Drug Administration is considering allowing some people to get another booster with one of the newest COVID-19 vaccines. Here's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. 
At this point in the pandemic, if you can't even remember how many COVID shots and boosters you've gotten, you're not alone. Kat Moore is a nurse practitioner, and even she had to take a minute to figure it out. I got the first two in January of 2021 when it first came out. Then I think I got another booster, and I think I got a, yet another booster after that, and then the Omicron. So I believe it's five, yeah. But Moore, who's 63 and lives in North Plainfield, New Jersey, knows she wants another booster right now, even though she's already had COVID once and knows the numbers are going down. I just don't want to get COVID again. I do not want to get it again. I don't really know what the long-term risks are, and I don't really want to find out. I don't want the risk of long COVID. I don't want the breathing problems. I don't want the fatigue. I don't want those things. But at the moment, Moore can't get another booster. The FDA has only authorized the newest formulations of the vaccines, the bivalent shots that target Omicron, for one booster. Instead, the agency is planning for an annual COVID booster campaign starting in the fall with vaccines that have been updated to target whichever variant is expected to be circulating next winter. Why not get both? You know, in the past, we've had upticks in the summertime. Why not get both? A federal official who was not authorized to speak publicly tells NPR that the agency is reconsidering the situation and may authorize a second booster with the bivalent vaccines for at least some people, like those who are at high risk because they have weak immune systems or are 65 and older. That's what some vaccine specialists have been urging, like Dr. Peter Hotez at the Baylor College of Medicine those doses are going to be expire and, and will be thrown out. So it makes sense to have those shots in arms rather than tossed in the wastebasket. The way to go is to get that second bivalent spring booster out there. The concern is the protection people got from their shots has been fading, not just against getting infected, but also possibly against getting seriously ill. So Hotez thinks people as young as 50 should be able to get a second bivalent booster if they want one. But other scientists aren't so sure. They say there just isn't any good data showing protection against serious illness has faded that much, or getting another shot would help that much. And there's a theoretical possibility that it could kind of backfire, because the bivalent boosters target a strain that's already been replaced by a new one. Dr. Gregory Poland is a vaccine expert at the Mayo Clinic. The concern is that if we continue to give boosters against a virus that's not circulating, when we do see the next variant, you may not develop a vigorous immune response to that new viral variant. Less than 17% of those eligible for the first bivalent shot got one, and so the demand for another one right now would probably be even lower. But some people would rush to get one if they could, like Moore and Ellen McDaniel Weisler. She's 63 and lives in rural Maryland. I am deeply convinced that the COVID pandemic is not over in spite of the fact that people are, you know, suffering from COVID fatigue, as am I, but people are still dying of COVID every day. The FDA is expected to make a decision within weeks. Rob Stein, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC. 
providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I don't know how many radio stations keep you in the driveway so that you can listen to the end of whatever the story is because it's fascinating and because you're really learning something from it. And WBUR definitely does that. You feel like you've actually grasped the meaning behind what you're listening to and why something's happening. They sort of unpack an issue and they get people from industry, from policy, from the research world to speak on whatever the topic is. And so you get a well-rounded look at whatever the issue is. WBUR allows for the gray area, what it would look like if there wasn't a right answer or if there are many right answers. For all the reasons you listen, give monthly at WBUR.org. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy here with Tiziana Deering. On this first day of our fundraiser, this is when we remind you that we are only as strong as the support we have from our community. That means you, you're listening. Maybe you listen every morning. You know that Morning Edition is your reliable source of quality journalism about the people and subjects you care about, like the story we just heard about possible new COVID vaccinations. It's, that's an example of how we keep following the important stories that you want to know about. It's also an example of how we give your monthly contributions back to you and this community in the form of journalism and storytelling you won't find anywhere else. Journalism that makes us all more engaged, more informed with each other and with our democracy. So please think about how you can help. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You are our largest source of funding. We know you start your day with us. We know we help you get ready for the world around you, just like that story on the impossible new bivalent booster. Not everyone can give. But today, if you can, Today is the day we're asking you to make a small monthly contribution to help us help everyone be ready for the day, the week, the month, the year. We'll be here this year, next year, the year after, because you support us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You are our support. You are our community. And we really appreciate it. And we want to show you that we do. So when you give today and this week, but I'm just going to say today because I want you to do it today. You get entered into a drawing <laughs> to go anywhere in the world, a $10,000 trip that you tailor to your likes and dislikes. That's what you get um, when you give. And there's also, Tiziana, tell them about the jacket. That's right. So do it today also because until 7 p.m. tonight, thank you, Charles River Apparel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have given us a WBUR four-season fleece jacket, blue and gray. It's got the WBUR logo embroidered. After 7 o'clock tonight, that will be $20 a month. But do it now, $10 a month, and you get enrolled in the sweepstakes, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much, WBUR.org, or call 1-800-909-9287, and we will be so grateful for your help. Thank you. Your gift matters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish. Counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. 
I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Vigils are being held in Nashville this week to remember the students and staff members who were killed in a school shooting on Monday. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee released a video message expressing his condolences to the victims' families. May we grieve in the days ahead, but not without hope. May we also act with wisdom, discernment, and grace. And may we love especially those who have lost. Six people, including three children, were killed when a shooter opened fire at the Covenant School. The suspect was killed by police within minutes of the attack. Senator Bernie Sanders and former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz are expected to square off in a highly anticipated hearing today about the company's labor practices. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports lawmakers are likely to question Schultz about allegations that the coffee chain has broken labor laws as it pushes back against workers' attempts to unionize. Howard Schultz is expected to deny any illegal actions, but he'll continue to argue Starbucks workers should have a direct relationship with the company without a union. Schultz is fresh off his third stint as Starbucks CEO since the 1980s, once a prominent Democrat hailed as a progressive corporate leader. Now he'll face questions from Senator Bernie Sanders about dozens of complaints against Starbucks filed both by workers and by federal labor officials since the first U.S. cafe unionized in late. 2021. Since then, workers at nearly 300 Starbucks coffee shops have voted to unionize, but all have yet to get close to reaching a collective bargaining contract with the company. Alina Seljuk, NPR News, Washington. Oil drillers will make a bid today for the right to produce oil and gas from vast stretches of the Gulf of Mexico. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the Biden administration is required to hold the sale as part of a big climate-focused spending package. Last year's Inflation Reduction Act mandated the sale by the end of this month. More than 73 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico are included in this lease sale. President Biden campaigned on banning new drilling on public land and waters. Environmental groups such as Oceana say expanding drilling for fossil fuels will make climate change even worse. They want the administration to finalize a new five-year offshore drilling plan with no new leases. Interior Secretary Deb Holland was asked about that on Capitol Hill Tuesday and said she would not make a decision before the end of a planning process that's underway. Jeff Brady, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. One of Boston's most prominent civil rights activists and black politicians has died. Mel King died yesterday at 94 years old. King spent his life in Boston fighting for things like affordable housing and good-paying jobs. Here he is in 1984 demanding President Ronald Reagan follow Massachusetts' lead and pull American dollars out of apartheid-era South Africa. We have enough of your involvement with racism in South Africa. We have enough. And we don't want this being done in our name. 
King was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 1973 and served there for nearly a decade. He lost a race for Boston mayor in 1983. He was the first black mayoral candidate to make the general election. Governor Healy tweeted out last night that, quote, The work and legacy of Mel King reverberate throughout Boston and well beyond the borders of Massachusetts. This loss will be felt just as widely. MassHealth plans to double the size of its call center and hire temporary workers to process applications. It's expecting an influx of people who need help re-enrolling in state-sponsored health insurance. Nearly one-third of residents will need to re-enroll to keep their coverage. People already in MassHealth didn't have to do anything to stay enrolled during the pandemic. A North Shore attorney is suing the MBTA and the State Department of Public Utilities over what he says are unsafe conditions at railroad crossings. WBR's Amy Sankalo reports he's challenging so-called quiet zones where cities and towns have banned the use of train horns. Peter Brown's friend Moses Shumo died when he was hit by a train in Beverly in 2019. Brown filed his suit for a former commuter rail engineer whose train struck and killed a teen there in 1999. Both deaths happened at crossings in quiet zones. Brown says the federal designation that allows communities like Beverly to ban horns is dangerous. We have people that are permitted and directed to walk from one side of a platform to another without the necessary safety warnings and protections. Brown's suit asks the Supreme Judicial Court to require trains to sound their horns. Commuter rail operator Keola says operators still ring a bell at crossings in so-called quiet zones. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. There will be quite a sight to see in the nighttime sky over Massachusetts this week. It's called a conjunction. That's when astronomical objects appear close together in the naked eye. This time, it'll be Venus, Uranus, Jupiter, Mercury, and Mars all lined up. Tim Brothers works at MIT's Wallace Astrophysical Observatory. He says tomorrow will be the best night to witness the phenomenon if conditions are right. Even when it gets dark, so even after the sun sets fully, let's say at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, we have so much light pollution in the state, it makes it hard to see something that faint. So you would really need to go to some place that is darker. Brothers suggest Cape Cod, Nantucket, or the Berkshires for the best views. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. The Bruins lost to the Nashville Predators 2-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Columbus Blue Jackets tomorrow. The Celtics lost on the road, falling to the Washington Wizards 130-111. The Seas are off today. They'll visit Milwaukee tomorrow. Sunny today with a high in the 50s. Cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall to around freezing. Some rain or snow showers around sunrise tomorrow. Sunny after that with temperatures only in the 30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets, April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. What are the biggest threats to democracy? 
Well, misinformation, voter suppression. And how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of Morning Edition, here with Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. This is our first day of our spring fundraiser, reminding you that, yeah, you are the one who supports us. Listeners are our largest source of support. You are the one who keeps us on the radio every day, bringing you the quality journalism we know that you depend on. And if you need to, you know, know that your money is doing something, all you have to do is listen every day or go online to WBUR.org or use the WBUR app on your phone. Wherever is most convenient for you, we are there with news that helps you know what is going on in your world. So please, this is when we come back and ask you to support us. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. So, Rupa, this is important. I want you to know that I forgive you. Oh, no. I forgive you for telling us that there is going to be rain and snow on the morning of Red Sox home opener. I had no choice. Well, and that's the thing. We bring the stories, Mm -hmm. right, whatever they are. Sometimes it's stuff we want to know, we want to hear. Sometimes it's truths we have to hear. Mm -hmm. But we know that's what independent journalism always does. And that's why we're asking you now, today, to give just a little bit a month to support that news and information, not only for you, but for your community. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And when you give today... Please today, do it today. Don't wait, but it's available all this week. But do it today because the week passes really quickly. You are entered into a drawing to go on a trip anywhere in the world, a $10,000 trip anywhere you want to go in the world. And you know you want to go so many places after being stuck at home during the pandemic. Take the opportunity, support WBUR, and get the chance to go anywhere in the world. We actually asked a bunch of our listeners to say, to think about and talk about where they would want to go if they could. My name is Glenn from Tewksbury. The number one place on my bucket list is Iceland. I'm Kayla from Burlington, New Jersey, and I would say that the spot on top of my vacation bucket list right now is Rio de Janeiro. Hi, this is Casey from Somerville. My number one bucket list destination is Australia. I would love to go there because my parents lived there when they were in their 20s, and I'd love to just walk in their footsteps and see the sights that they saw and see the old apartment that they lived in, just get to experience all the animals and the nature and the culture that is in Australia. I would go a little further than Australia and maybe say New Zealand. Oh, my goodness. I've always wanted to You're an to ambitious New- woman. <laughs> I am. Well, $10,000 anywhere in the world, man. That's I would go right. to New Zealand. That's right. That is what you get when you support WBUR, a chance to go anywhere in the world. And when you go anywhere in the world, you could possibly also wear a very smart 
blue jacket. That I will tell you about. And thanks to Charles River Apparel for this. So listen, you have until Friday to make a small monthly contribution that gets you enrolled in the sweepstakes. But do it today, because today until 7 p.m., we can offer you a Charles River Apparel fleece jacket. Comes in men's and women's sizes, four season warmth, blue on the outside, gray on the inside. It's got that beautiful WBUR logo uh, embroidered on the chest, made by a local company. After 7 o'clock tonight, it's $20 a month. So do it now. Get that twofer, which we love to give you because you make up the largest share of our funding, Mm -hmm. and we appreciate you. To do that, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And this is a, a jacket from Charles River Apparel. Thank you so much, Charles River Apparel, for helping us out with that. It is a very smart, very swanky jacket that will help you deal with all the ups and downs and the weather coming in the next few weeks in this Snow on opening day. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Your support matters. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd. HuntingtonTheater.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Mexico's president says migrants who were scared of being deported set mattresses on fire at a Mexican detention center where 38 people died. At least 28 others were badly injured in that fire in the town of Ciudad Juarez, just across the border from El Paso, Texas. It's the latest in a series of tragedies for migrants from Central and South America who continue to stream toward Mexico's border with the U.S. Rafael Velasquez is country director for Mexico at the International Rescue Committee. He joins us this morning from Mexico City. Rafael, uh, what did you hear from your team about this particular facility and the migrants who were detained there? Good morning. For the last couple of weeks, what the team reports that they've seen in Ciudad Juarez is an increase in the number of people arriving to the city. This is mostly because of uh, confusion over the changing norms, misinformation, and also to access the new CVPA app so that they could uh, register for an an interview process. But at the same time, they also report an increase in detentions by Mexican authorities. This has been happening in the streets. This has been happening in hotels. And worryingly for us, uh, this has been happening in civil society shelters where we have seen situations where arbitrarily refugees are being picked up by authorities as well. I know the Biden administration has been very public in trying to get people not to show up, to not make that journey. But people are, uh, clearly. Um, is, is any of this leading up to a buildup that is almost unsustainable there at the border? We carried out an assessment in various shelters throughout the uh, border in, uh, in Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez in Matamoros more than a year ago. And even then, we found that most of the shelters were already at capacity. At most at capacity. Um, and, and also, I know that uh, the Biden administration is relying on Mexico to house these people. I mean, is, is it getting to a point, Rafael, where something like this is bound to happen because of the amount of people and stresses that that area maybe can't support? The, the Mexico system is under-resourced and is completely strained. Just to give you a, an idea in terms of numbers, in 2018, Mexico received 18,000 asylum applications. And in 2022, it received over 118,000 applications. Meanwhile, the U.S. keeps putting on um, norms and regulations that 
push asylum seekers back into Mexico. What that is inevitably going to do is it's going to push people into taking illegal pathways to seek asylum. So what measures would you like to see in place to maybe better protect migrants who are approaching the border? There is a question of uh, definitely political will on both sides of the border. There is a question of uh, resourcing uh, asylum systems. There's also an understanding, a better understanding of the crisis uh, that we are facing, uh, the migration crisis that we're facing in Mexico. My team in Mexico City is working with people who uh, escaped the fall of Kabul, people who escape, uh, currently escape the uh, war in Ukraine. We are also helping people that are running away from violence and uh, food insecurity in Central America and the implosion of Haiti or people who are escaping political oppression in other parts of America. I don't think the international community understands the depth of the migration crisis in Mexico. That needs to be resourced and it needs to be supported, not just from the Mexican government, but also from the international community. But is it because Mexico is trying to work with the U.S. on this and maybe putting their needs below uh, the U.S.'s needs on, the, on immigration? What I can tell you is that Mexico has historically been a country that has opened its arms to asylum seekers in times of need. And unfortunately, over the last couple of years, what we've seen is that the, the systems are now past breaking point. What we saw yesterday, the horrible events of yesterday, was not the first time that that happened. It happened already in Tennessee in 2020, and we see no indication of why that wouldn't happen again, unless there's that change both in political will and in resources from the international community. Is it sometimes maybe a measure of just building more facilities? Is that something that's possible? Would that alleviate pressure just to have more places for people to go? Well, it's important to remember that what happened yesterday was happening in a detention center, which is not the same as a, as a shelter. Mm -hmm. uh, there are alternatives to detention. We work and encourage governments to look into those alternatives. What uh, happened yesterday, again, was in a detention center in Mexico. To be in a regular status in Mexico is not a crime, it's an administrative offense. These people were detained over an administrative offense. They were not there because of breaking any laws. Title 42 is uh, going to expire in May. What do you think, Rafael, is going to happen once that order is lifted? Um, so yes, there have been conversations about potentially ending Title 42, and there is the uh, consideration for the asylum back. In, 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 in fact, this week, the period, uh, the period for U.S. citizens to share their feedback uh, to the administration and ask them to withdraw the proposed regulations uh, should, should have taken place. If the measure is approved, it, it will bar asylum seekers who cross through another country on their way to the southern U.S. border unless they had previously applied for asylum elsewhere. But uh, ultimately, what it is important to remember is that the horrible events that happened yesterday will just continue to happen unless the urgent needs to ensure the systems are in place to provide safety for people in need for international protection are put in place. Rafael Velasquez is the country director for Mexico at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you. Republicans did not achieve that hoped-for red wave in last year's midterms, but some things did go their way, so now they're looking to build on those successes. And one of those successes is in Florida's Miami-Dade County. It's a largely conservative Latino area that turned red last year for the first time in two decades. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Cresales has more. Outside of a Miami stadium on a recent warm evening, demonstrators sang the Cuban national anthem as crowds lined up to see a baseball game. 
The U.S. and Cuban national teams were about to face off inside. In Spanish, they chanted for freedom, an end to Cuba's communist regime, and pleaded for the U.S. to help. Among the demonstrators was 73-year-old Cuban-American Marta Casamayor, an avid follower of the political scenes in both countries. The retired teacher says in Spanish she voted for President Biden and now regrets it, arguing Biden has stabbed her and other Cuban-Americans in the back. Biden ha traicionado la administración Biden. Casamayor says the Biden administration has not issued enough pressure to end Cuba's regime. She also says Biden should do more to protect the dreamers, immigrants who moved here as children. She came to the United States with not much more than a suitcase full of dreams at the age of 47. Now the grandmother of five thinks the Cuban regime would have fallen under a second term for former President Trump saying here it weighs on her, she did not vote for his re-election. Conservative Latino voters have bought into GOP messaging that falsely tied Democrats to socialist or communist regimes in Cuba, Venezuela and other Latin American countries. As a result, what was once a blue stronghold for more than two decades flipped thanks to an early relentless ground game by Republicans so says Florida International University politics professor Eduardo Camarra. Republicans understand better the idea of the Latino American dream, and Democrats still, for the most part, approach Latinos as part of the civil rights struggle in the United States. Camarra says Democrats set up their ground game too late and treated Latino voters here like a monolith. The damage is long-term because for Democrats to recover, It'll probably take another generation. Former Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Mucarcel Powell hopes it's sooner than that. I think we do it one seat at a time. This is not going to change overnight, but if it changed in just a matter of two election cycles, we can bring it right back. Mucarcel Powell says depressed voter turnout, culture war issues, and Republican disinformation played a key role last year. She says she was sounding the alarm on the disinformation trend before she lost re-election to Congress in 2020. Still, she concedes her party overlooked the state's 20 million residents and the unique issues that matter here. So if you care about the environment, you need to care about Florida. If you care about minority groups, if you care about Latinos, you need to care about Florida. And we've been abandoned. At the iconic Versailles Cafe in Little Havana, a popular stop for Republicans, Miami-Dade County GOP official Kevin Cooper says Republican election committees, or RECs, in other parts of the country are reaching out to find out how to replicate their winning model. We take that message across the county and soon we'll take it across the country as, as we explain to different RECs and different parties how to build their operations. Back at the Miami protest, Marta Casamayor slams Democrats over their Cuba policy. That includes a recent proposal by a group of Senate Democrats to open up trade with Cuba. Disillusioned with her vote for Biden, Casamayor said she contacted her local elections office to change her party affiliation from Democrat to Republican. Yo cambié de partido, todo legal. He pasé para los republicanos de nuevo.
Now, Casa Mayor says her biggest dilemma with Republicans is which presidential candidate to pick in the primary for the 2024 elections. But as she considers her options, Casa Mayor says she adores Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and says it's time for a new, younger generation of leadership. Claudia Rizales, NPR News, Miami. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, there's a new chapter in the story of a Guantanamo inmate accused of orchestrating the USS Cole warship bombing. His lawyer has written a novel based on the experience. Listen wherever you are, on your smart speaker, your phone, your computer, or on the radio. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible. Here at WBUR, like Steve Inskeep said, we are here to inform you of the news that you want to know, whether good or bad. Hopefully a mix of the two. It can be a hard time to listen to the news, but we are here to make sure that you're informed, you're participating, your democracy, you know what's going on in your community, and you can be there to make a difference. We are increasingly relying on financial support from our listeners. Things still haven't gotten back to where they were business-wise. Business, local businesses support us. They do, and we really appreciate that. But it's still not back to where it was before the pandemic. And as you probably know, the journalism industry as a whole is struggling. Meanwhile, more people are actually listening to public radio. That's what the data is showing us. More people are listening to WBUR specifically for this vital news. We need your support and the support of every listener who can give some Something to help sustain this service, whatever you can give. Please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Tiziana Deary. So, Rupa, you know the new season of Ted Lasso is out. <laughs> if I haven't a, seen it yet. Okay, if you're a Ted Lasso fan, though, you know the character Danny says football is life. Mm-hmm. WBUR is life. And what I mean by that is we bring you all of life. What's happening in your neighborhood, what's happening in the world, what you need to know in your own life, Mm -hmm. whether it's weather or tax policy Mm -hmm. or climate, we bring it to you because we are as, I don't know what the word is, committed as you are to being in community, Mm -hmm. living, thriving understanding and being smarter. We ask you to support us with a little gift, a little bit a month to bring that to you, 
and to bring it to the rest of our community so that we can continue being an important piece of life and an important piece of our democracy. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Laura Dern. Laura Dern makes me think of Jurassic Park. There you go. Jurassic Park makes me think of Kauai, where it was filmed. I know where you're going with this. I am so lucky to have been there. And oh, my gosh, I would love to go back. I know I mentioned New Zealand, but now I'm on Kauai. (laughs) When you give today, you are entered into a drawing to go anywhere in the world, including Kauai. (laughs) It's a $10,000 trip that you customize in the way that you want. This is the way that we are showing appreciation when you give today, when you are the important source of WBUR support that we need to continue bringing the news every day. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It does get cool at night in Kauai, so you may want to take a jacket, maybe one jacket hey, in particular. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, Exactly. So if you give today, and today is the day to do this, until 7 p.m. tonight, a gift of $10 a month allows us to thank you with a Charles River apparel blue fleece four-season jacket. Zip up, zipper pockets, got the logo embroidered on the chest, gray interior, uh, women's and men's sizes. It's yours for a gift of $10 a month until 7 p.m. And they're going fast. Mm -hmm. Now, after 7 p.m., it will be $20 a month. So why not get that twofer? Make the gift, get the jacket, and be entered in the sweepstakes to go to Kauai or New Zealand (laughs) or anywhere else you want to go. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. 1-800-929-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Please, we need your support. Be part of your communities and support your community. Thank you so much for your help. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's NEH Distinguished Teaching Professorship. Presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Damage assessments and cleanup efforts are continuing in areas of Mississippi, where a tornado killed more than 20 people last week. Lacey Alexander with Mississippi Public Broadcasting says it's expected to be a long, slow process. 
Other than a few volunteers and residents cleaning up debris, the neighborhoods in Silver City are quiet and still. But a few miles north in Belzona, Mississippi, a shelter is set up in a multi-purpose government building with tables overflowing with water, imperishable food, clothing, and hygiene items. Justice Johnson was at the shelter helping his grandmother. He says her home was demolished, but her community has greatly helped. It took the whole apartment, like, so there's nothing left. The roof caved in. Yeah, we lost all the vehicles and everything. The community pulled together. Once it happened, they started seeing what the assistance that everybody needed, from groceries to water. FEMA employees will be at the shelter helping victims apply for assistance all week. For NPR News, I'm Lacey Alexander in Jackson, Mississippi. The EF4 tornado also killed one person in Alabama. Police in Tennessee are still examining a motive for Monday's deadly shooting at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville. Six people were killed, including three children. Police say the 28-year-old who attacked the Covenant School had been under a doctor's care for an undisclosed emotional disorder. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are still concerns over just what was in the air after a chemical fire in Braintree. The fire last month burned paints, oils, solvents, and other waste products. The state says it posed little risk to public health, but some local residents reported a burning sensation in their eyes or throats. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. Braintree Town Councilor Elizabeth Maglio says her phone blew up with texts and calls after the fire. People were totally freaked out. What did we breathe? What are the chemicals? Is it safe to go outside? Weeks later, they still have questions. Many say they don't trust the company's conclusion that the fire posed no risk, since nearby air monitors registered high levels of particulate matter. Maglio has called on the state to do a study about the fire's impacts. And in the meantime, she and others say that given the concentration of industrial activity in the area, the state should set up more air quality monitors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Massachusetts is too expensive, and that hurts its ability to compete with other states. That's the assessment from Governor Moore Healy. She made the comments yesterday at a state house hearing where she was pushing her tax relief and reform package. We know that Massachusetts, among its many strengths, are our families. But right now, the high cost of childcare and housing is weighing too many people down. The tax plan includes a $600 tax credit per dependent, as well as additional relief for seniors and renters. Healy also wants to lower the state's short-term capital gains tax and triple its current million-dollar estate tax threshold. A new report reveals the life expectancy of Massachusetts residents widely varies by county. Researchers with the University of Wisconsin found people in Nantucket lived 83 years on average. That's almost six years longer than people in Hamden County. That county includes Springfield and Holyoke. Life expectancy also varies widely by race. In Suffolk County, home to Boston, Asian residents had the highest expectancy of 93 years. Black residents had the lowest, living 75 and a half years on average. It's 835.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Central Square Theater's Angels in America, Tony Kushner's Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning hopeful modern masterpiece begins April 20th, centralsquaretheater.org. Not a good night for the local teams last night. The Celtics lost to the Wizards 130-111 to in Washington. That snapped their three-game winning streak, and the Bruins' seven-game winning streak ended last night at the Garden. They fell to the Nashville Predators 2-1. to Clear skies today with temperatures rising to the low 50s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight, and overnight there's a chance of rain and a little snow. Tomorrow, sunny and cold with highs only in the upper 30s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Mel King, one of Boston's most prominent civil rights activists and politicians, has died. He was 94 years old. His son Michael said King passed away yesterday afternoon at home in his sleep. King spent decades calling for good jobs, schools, and housing for all the people of Boston. He's being remembered not just for what he accomplished in Boston, but for his lifelong optimism and the power of people. WBUR's Max Larkin reports. Boston touts its history as a temporary home to two giants of the American civil rights movement. Martin Luther King preached, studied, and fell in love here. Malcolm X spent six years in Roxbury and seven more in the state's prisons. In Mel King, Boston had another giant, one who was 100% homegrown. So says Jamal Crawford, an activist based in Roxbury. Ambassador-like, statesman-like, Mel King is like our Nelson Mandela. For decades, King was a tireless organizer, for affordable housing, good-paying jobs, and much more. In 1978, Metco founder Ruth Batson told WGBH Television that King seemed to be in the middle of every initiative that mattered, and always in a collaborative spirit. He doesn't want to stomp all over people. He believes in teaching as you go along, so that we all come along together, maybe in disagreement sometimes, but with understandings all the time. King learned to coexist from the start. He was born in 1928 to Caribbean immigrants, one of 11 children. It was a humble upbringing, but happy and generous. As a child, King remembered he was once followed home by a man who complained that he was hungry and cold. When King reached home, his father, a dock worker and union secretary, welcomed the man inside. He came in and was fed, warmed, and given some food on his way, and I'll never forget that my father said, no matter what you have, you always have enough to share. Mel King shared his whole life with Boston. He only ever left the South End for four years to go to Claflin College, a historically black institution in South Carolina. Shortly after he returned, then-Mayor Jack Hines labeled King's cosmopolitan South End neighborhood as a slum. His family and hundreds of others were evicted, and 24 acres were bulldozed. The loss angered King, 
but it also propelled him into activism. In 1968, King led the construction of a tent city to block more of that so-called urban renewal. It was a new and militant mode of struggle, learned, King argued, from American history, from the mass killing of natives to the internment of the Japanese. The alternatives of extermination and concentration camps are our frame of reference. Ever the optimist, King added that there was a better option, the unconditional acceptance of African Americans into a diverse and equal society, a revival of the lost world that he'd loved as a child. I'm not talking about uh, that melting pot kind of thing. I'm talking about integration at the seats of power and decision-making. And without that, the rest of what we talk about is a sham. King got his own seat at the table a few years later. In 1973, he was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Shortly after arriving on Beacon Hill, he fought for his right to wear a dashiki on the floor of the House. Six foot five, bald, bearded, and radical, King must have raised some eyebrows, at least at first. Here was this guy who was strong and, and outspoken and had all kinds of courage, but he was also a very effective legislator. In his first term as governor, Michael Dukakis worked and sometimes warred with King. King's agenda was broad and sometimes surprising. He worked to expand community farming, protect community television, and to source clean and healthy food from across the state. But that cooperative, progressive mission didn't always mesh with a parochial city. As when King failed to negotiate a deal to stave off the violent mid-70s blowback around court-ordered school desegregation. Across the table, then, was Ray Flynn, then the state rep for an inflamed South Boston. The two men were known to each other. They'd been rivals and teammates on the city's basketball courts. Well, I played for the South Boston Boys Club. Mel King played for the South End Boys Club. In 1983, Flynn and King squared off again as the two unlikely finalists in the race to replace Kevin White as mayor. The press sold them as a matched pair of public school grads from working-class origins. King bristled at the comparison. Flynn had opposed busing, while King was a progressive ahead of his time and attracted a rainbow coalition to his campaign. Still, on election day, Flynn won with nearly two-thirds of the vote. True to form, King didn't mourn. He organized, as in 1984, when he demanded that Ronald Reagan follow Massachusetts' lead and pull American dollars out of apartheid South Africa. We have enough of your involvement with racism in South Africa. We have enough, and we don't want this being done in our name. In late life, King's voice softened, but still he spoke as a professor at MIT and as a host in Sunday roundtables at his home, paired with his wife, Joyce. And he served as a coach to a new generation of activists. For Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, King was a life-changing mentor and model. He's supportive and encouraging, but he doesn't just endorse an idea because you have one. I have certainly been a better lawmaker for his stage council, but more than that, I hope that I'm on path to being a better person. Today, many of Boston's Black and Latino residents still find themselves on the wrong side of socioeconomic chasms in segregated neighborhoods with lower test scores and far less household wealth. But that doesn't mean Mel King failed to build a better future. Far from it. 
King would have thought of it like a football game, says activist Jamal Crawford. It's about, oh, we got two yards on this play, oh, four yards on this play, moving incrementally closer to the goal. Year after year, King moved the ball forward. From the tent city apartments, the 269 units of mixed-income housing he won just blocks from Copley Square, to computers and other technology in city classrooms, to the resurgent national talk of reparations for slavery, integrated schools, and environmental justice. At its best and at its worst, Boston made Mel King. But then, slowly but surely, Mel King remade Boston and the world around it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Anthony Brooks right there, one of the most hardworking reporters I know reminding us that listener support is the biggest source of funding for WBUR. This is our spring fundraiser, and we're asking you to give money to WBUR. So it's only fair to tell you what we're going to do with it. And the answer is simple. We will turn your money into more of the programs and news stories you listen to on WBUR and read at WBUR.org from people like Anthony Brooks. More global and national coverage, more deeply local reporting that helps you understand the important things going on right around you. Give $10, $20, or $30 a month, whatever is right for you. When you do, WBUR will have the resources it needs to continue bringing you the news you depend on every day. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, here with Tiziana Deering. You know, I'm just thinking about some of the WBUR voices we've heard this morning. Mm-hmm. Anthony Brooks, Miriam R- Wasser, Max Larkin, Gabriella Emanuel. You trust our WBUR reporters to bring you the news and the information that you need because you rely on us. Please start this fundraiser by giving a small gift at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. A little bit a month makes all the difference. It does. And whatever you can give. We know it's a tough time for some folks. But if you can give 10 or 20 or $30 a month right now, we will really appreciate it. And when you do, you get entered into a sweepstakes or a drawing or whatever word we use is not sufficient to say what's going to happen because you will be part of, you will have a chance to have a trip anywhere in the world, a $10,000 trip anywhere in the world that you customize to you. You are entered into that drawing when you give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 or we're going to tell you a little later about a sweet navy jacket from Charles River Apparel that you can wear while you go on those trips. So lots for you here. We really appreciate your help. Please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with Simone Lee. 
a history-making exhibition, makes its U.S. debut. Opens April 6th. ICABoston.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Howard Schultz, who just stepped down as interim CEO of Starbucks, heads to Capitol Hill today. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and others are preparing tough questions for him over how he has handled his employees' push to unionize. NPR's Andrea Hsu joins us now for a preview. Andrea, I take it today's hearing has nothing to do with Starbucks putting olive oil in their coffee. Only in Seattle, though, but still a great idea. So what is this uh, hearing about? Well, Schultz is going to be in the hot seat. He's appearing before the Senate committee that oversees labor and employment issues, and that committee is chaired by none other than Bernie Sanders, who, of course, is one of labor's biggest champions in Congress. And Sanders has been trying to get Schultz before the Senate for a long time. He wants to press him on what Sanders calls Starbucks' illegal union-busting campaign. He says Schultz is the architect of that campaign. And as we've reported, nearly 300 Starbucks stores have actually unionized but it continues to be a pretty big fight. Starbucks, you know, has fired workers who were organizing and closed some of the unionized stores. And as Sanders will point out, federal labor officials have found Starbucks violated labor law in a number of cases across the country. So we're expecting Sanders to ask, you know, why do you keep breaking the law? Mm, all right. So then what might Howard Schultz say to respond? Well, he's going to deny that Starbucks is doing anything unlawful. The company has always said that workers who were fired were fired for misconduct, not for organizing a union. And we can also expect Schultz to talk about how much Starbucks respects and values its workers. He's gonna talk about the competitive wages and great benefits Starbucks offers even part-time workers. And what's kind of ironic is that this is the same message that Howard Schultz brought to Washington nearly three decades ago. He was on this White House panel on corporate responsibility in 1996. And here's how then President Clinton introduced him. Starbucks has been uh, recognized uh, for its rather extensive uh, benefit program for the workforce, uh, including the scope of its health care plan. So I'd like for Mr. Schultz to talk about that. Thank you very much, Mr. President. So it's really interesting that Howard Schultz has gone from being Mr. Corporate Responsibility to union buster in chief, even though his playbook is largely the same. Yeah, it shows how much times have changed, too. So is anything going to come out of this uh, hearing? Well, probably nothing too concrete, but what Sanders and Democrats have been wanting to do when it comes to unions is pass something called the PRO Act. It's a bill that would do a number of things. For one, it would introduce financial penalties for companies who illegally interfere with labor organizing. Right now, there aren't any penalties. And in fact, the AFL-CIO's president, Liz Schuler, recently pointed out you get a bigger fine for violating fishing laws in many states than you do for busting unions. But, you know, of course, with Congress divided the way it is, the PRO Act has gone nowhere. So Sanders is doing what he can do, which is basically public shaming. Yeah, but, you know, I keep hearing about union campaigns in places like Tesla, Apple Store. I mean, so aren't unions having a moment right now? Well, yes and no. We have seen a surge in labor organizing. And Gallup found public approval of unions is at a 60-year high. But the share of workers in the U.S. who are members of unions is pretty small. It's actually the lowest on record. And researchers who study labor movements say we're unlikely to see the numbers budge much until there's some significant change to labor law that makes organizing less of an uphill climb. NPR's Andrew Shu, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today marks the start of our spring fundraiser, and our CEO, Margaret Lowe, is here, so you can hear from her directly. Thanks so much for being here, Margaret. It's very nice to see you. It's very nice to see you, Rupa. I love being here with you. Thank you. We love having you. We're talking, though, at a really tough time for journalism. The industry has been contracting for years, certainly all my career, and the pandemic and the volatile state of the economy are definitely making things much worse. And I'm thinking about the recently announced layoffs at NPR. I'm thinking about New England public media. How are you feeling and thinking about those changes? Yeah, you're right, Rupa. I mean, it's a pretty perilous time for journalism. There's a war on truth, and quality information is in short supply. And that's not a new idea, but at a time when we should be adding journalists to our ranks, we're all having to make really tough decisions in order to keep our organizations healthy. What does our financial future look like? So I want to begin on an upbeat note. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So my hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. What are the stories that you've been especially proud of lately? Ooh, Rupa, that's always a hard question. It's like asking me to pick my favorite child. There are so many, but let me just talk about a couple of recent things that we've done. Earlier this week, gun control activist David Hogg, who survived the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, five years ago, was at WBUR City Space talking about the epidemic of gun violence and what we can do to address it. And one of the things that he said that really hit home is that stories, not statistics, are what really make a difference, Um, something, of course, that we totally get. We just published an investigative story that aired on this show with the Globe Spotlight team. There are new revelations about the Patriot star Aaron Hernandez, who killed himself in prison nearly six years ago. We're intensely focused on covering climate and our environment, and we recently did a deeply reported series on what are known as forever chemicals that are in lots of products we all use, everything from hand lotion to dental floss. And our coverage helped people understand the health risks of those chemicals and what we can actually do to reduce our exposure. And another important thing to say out loud is that we know that in the midst of all these very weighty subjects, the news can feel pretty overwhelming to people. And we all want and need meaningful diversion, too. So we've launched a daily crossword puzzle to add to the WBUR weekly news quiz. We produce riveting podcasts to binge on, newsletters with all the good books you might want to read, or great tips for what to do on the weekends. And there's no paywall. It's available to everyone and anyone, anywhere, anytime. What about our national programs here and now and on point? How are you thinking about their impact on the national level? 
we're so rooted in this city and in this region at the same time, WBUR produces more national programming than any other public radio organization in the country. Our, our midday news magazine here and now is heard by nearly five million people every week, and it's produced right down the hall from where you and I are talking here at WBUR. And I think of On Point, which is both on air and a podcast, like some of the best long-form magazine journalism, breaking ideas and exploring weighty issues that really no one else is covering. We just won an award for a show we produced about a little-known epidemic, survivors of domestic violence who are living with traumatic brain injury. We talk all the time about this issue with football players, right? But almost never about the estimated tens of millions of women who are walking around with brain injuries from abusive partners. And many of them actually have no idea what's causing things like lapses in memory, difficulty concentrating problems with balance or vision or fatigue until they finally, if they finally do, get diagnosed. So the show I'm talking about profiled a woman named Freya Doe, and we actually used a pseudonym to protect her safety. In any case, she shared her story of the abuse she suffered from the beginning of her first marriage when she was just 18 years old. And then, many years later, she finally understood what had caused her issues. Let's listen. And having an answer to what was going on with me was such a relief. And it also allowed me to realize that What happened to me was not a shameful thing. The shame did not belong on me. The shame belonged on him. We heard from so many listeners after the show. One woman who wrote explained how she too was in an abusive marriage and went on to say this. Yet even with professional help, traumatic brain injury was never a consideration in my diagnoses and treatments. This show helped me to finally end the ongoing questions of self-doubt and blame that have haunted me for 65 years. Truth, this listener wrote, is always better late than never. Please accept my profound thanks for shining the light on this invisible epidemic. Getting a note like that, realizing that our reporting this story helped one person make sense of her whole life, it's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. And, you know, the late great journalist and writer Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And that's why BUR is here, to help make sense of the world, to help us understand life experiences beyond our own. Stories do that. I mean, they tether us together and remind us of what we have in common and really of our own humanity. I can't let you go without talking about Sylvia Pacioli, who's been with NPR for so long and is hanging up her headphones and signing off. Yeah, Sylvia has been on NPR's air for 41 years. She's NPR's longest serving foreign correspondent. Her name is practically synonymous with Rome, and she's covered three popes. She's also taken us around the world to Prague's Velvet Revolution, the Balkans, Myanmar, Iraq. I have such vivid memories of the days 40 years ago, editing her pieces in the middle of the night on Morning Edition when I was an overnight production assistant. And it was through her reporting that I really began to understand the world and the full power of journalism. And I can't tell you how many people have asked me if I know Sylvia Pajoli. And when they ask, they always try to say her name just like she does, which is close to impossible. I actually brought a quick clip of Sylvia sucking out from Rome in one of her latest stories. Here it is. Sylvia Poggioli, NPR News, 
Rome. Sylvia Pajoli, NPR News, Rome. I definitely can't say it like she does, but I've always been so proud to say that I do indeed know Sylvia, who, by the way, grew up here. Sylvia represents the very best of what NPR and WBUR stand for, and, and she always will. So if having someone like Sylvia Pajoli in your life for the past 5, 10, 15, or 40 years has mattered to you, please support WBUR and NPR with your donation. WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rupa. So great. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. We just heard from Margaret Lowe talking about the NPR journalist you know and depend on. She talked about the impact WBUR has on listeners' lives. She mentioned the war on truth and the part that WBUR plays in that war. Be a warrior in that battle. Do your part for your community. That's what you do when you support WBUR. You put your money behind the truth. We know times are tough. Margaret talked about that. But as you're considering the institutions you still want to support, Think about what you get from WBUR every day and what your community gets. Please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. So as I get ready to go over and do Radio Boston, Rupa, this may be my last chance ever to try this. So, hmm. Sylvia Poggioli. I've always wanted to say that That's on not, air. I, I, I buy it. That, there you that go. sounded pretty good to me. Maybe my last chance, but this is not your last chance to revel in the stories that your favorite NPR reporters bring you. You rely on that news and information every day, and we're asking you to make a small gift, a small monthly contribution to keep that up, not only for you, but for your community. Not everyone can do it. If you're the one who can, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You are the largest source of our support. You matter. Thank you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmina Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.